The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, take your Bibles and open to Job chapter 9. I know we're studying Romans, but go to Job chapter 9 for a moment. If I were to ask you to supply an answer for this question, I wonder what you might say. What's the most important question ever asked? Asked another way, what's the most important question ever framed in the Bible? Asked another question, what is the summary of the problem of man as articulated through the Old Testament? Well, this is very clearly given to us in Job 9 in a series of back and forth that Job's having with his so-called friends who are trying to understand suffering in light of a sovereign God, in light of a providential God, who are trying to figure out how to help Job with his suffering. In the midst of that, after this few back and forths, Job finally, out of absolute utter frustration, not knowing what he's done to solicit this judgment of God, not knowing what his theological errors are that have made his friends, these um, armchair theologians, finally articulates the question that the entire Old Testament poses, the question that the entire history of mankind presents. In Job chapter 9, verse 1, Job says, In truth, I know that this is so. And then he asks this, But how can a man be in the right before God? How can a man possibly be in the right before God? If you want to, you can look at the end of Ecclesiastes. The way that Solomon, after the most deep musings in the entire Bible about the nature of life and the reality of suffering concludes at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. The conclusion when all has been heard is this. Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to everyone. For God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. The reality of God's judgment was an ever-present threat to the Old Testament Jew. It was an ever-present threat to the pagan in the times before Christ. And even in the times after Christ, that ever-present threat of judgment, the lingering possibility of hell, is what haunts every man. The gospel is said in Hebrews to come to free us from the fear of death, which holds us captive. When you put those two ideas together. Job says, how does a man become right before God? Because God's going to bring every single act, every single thought to judgment. You understand what Paul is doing when he pens the book of Romans. The book of Romans is an answer and a theological articulation of the problem that man suffers from most. How can you be in the right before God? What do we do about the coming judgment? How can I prepare to meet a God? What do you do with a God who you cannot get to and at the same time cannot outrun? And the answer is the gospel. And for 16 chapters, Paul articulates the truth of the gospel. The book of Romans is in one sense the most profound book in the Bible. It's clearly the 
most valued book of all the theologians in the Reformation. All scriptures inspired by God, all scriptures profitable, but it seems that the, theolo- the, the reformers were right when they called Romans the cathedral of the Christian faith. Since we've begun our study in Romans, we've adopted a working illustration. I've left the graphic up for you of a, of a watch, an automatic watch, a mechanical watch, not a, a watch that's fed by a, a battery, but a, a watch that's fed by a mainspring and by gears. It was the Huguenots who fled persecution in France, landed in Geneva, who perfected the art of watchmaking. And they did so to articulate the order and the glory of God. The other designers were were intending to make their watches as complicated as possible as a mirror reflection of the God of order and the great designer in creation. Modern mechanical and automatic watches have over 115 parts that work together underneath the surface, under the, underneath the face of the watch that, that you never see unless it's a skeletized watch in which you can see through. Springs and mounts and screws and bevels and fulcrums and levers and gears all working together to make the watch accurate. Now, if you look at these parts, you marvel at the genius of a watchmaker. But in the end, you have to realize That all those moving parts, all those stationary fulcrums, all those points, all that engineering simply works together so that we know what time it is. This is much how the book of Romans works. Paul intends to show us what time it is, which is a way of saying how you can be right before God, how you can be saved. But Romans lifts up the surface of the watch and says, look at all of these wonderful parts Moving parts, stationary parts, the jewels of a watch. For 16 chapters, he gives us a glimpse of the inner workings of the gospel. Yet, in the end, he simply says, here's how to be right before God. Here's how to be saved. Everyone knows the illustration of don't lose the forest for the trees. But do you also know the illustration of don't lose the trees for the forest? The illustration works really well both ways and functions well in understanding a big book in the Bible, especially Romans. It's easy to get lost in all of these little parts in Romans and miss the the big argument. Or you can look at all the big argument of Romans and miss the joy and the wonder of all the little parts. It's easy to make those mistakes. What we're trying to do in working through Romans pretty slowly is to get the forest and the trees. Now, for several weeks, a couple months here, we've been working through Romans chapter 2, and we've been looking very intimately and intricately at the trees in Romans chapter 2. Today, we're going to do what we did at the end of chapter 1. We're going to look at the forest. We're going to back up, and we're going to take the entire theological construct of Romans 2 and see how that fits in the flow of Paul's argument. Now, I went to seminary to learn that Romans 2 follows Romans One, there's a lot of money and a lot of time to figure that out, but it actually does, and it's important that we understand that. There is a logical progression in the book of Romans that is a series of very time-centered arguments that depend on one another, that work together to make the gospel so glorious. So we're going to back up. And look, like we did at the end of chapter 1, we stayed chapter 1 and said, what are the theological implications of chapter 1? Now we're going to look back at chapter 2 
And we'll do that for each chapter as we move through this book. What's the primary theological accent that Paul has made in Romans chapter 2? In order to find this, we need to do a, just a simple reading of the text, and it will jump out as to what Romans 2 is about. There's a word, a key word, that shows up in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, verse 12, and verse 16. The word is either judge or judgment. Chapter, one, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, 2, 3, 5, 12, 16. In verse 1, by the way, Paul refers to the man sitting in judgment, but the, starting in verse 2, you have God sitting on the throne of judgment every time judgment or judge is mentioned. He's the perfect and righteous judge, and in these first 16 verses at least, you discover the principles of judgment followed up by the implications in verses 17 and following. Now, these important principles are important in the development of Paul's argument. In chapter 1, he says, the gospel is glorious. It concerns his son, Jesus Christ. But then beginning in verses 18 and following, he says, before you understand how glorious salvation is, you have to understand how bad it was and how bad you needed a savior. And so in the end of chapter 1, he really takes to task the nature of the Gentiles, of the heathen, and shows and exposes the dreadful condition and blackness of the heart of every sinner ever born. Then in chapter 2, he does something genius. For the first 16 verses, he talks about someone who's trying to be moral and says, I can sit in judgment over those people in chapter 1, and those are rank pagans, but I'm not like that. I stand out. And then in chapter 17, uh, excuse me, verse 17 reveals that he's been talking about the Jews all along. We're going to look at chapter 2 very quickly and very briefly and pull out of it, I think, the theological accent that Paul's making And in that, we're going to find 12 principles of God's judgment. That's what the chapter's about. 12 principles of God's judgment. Now, actually, Rod and I were talking yesterday about homiletics. Uh, You're not supposed to have 12 points in a sermon. But I'm covering a whole chapter, so give me a little grace, okay? 12 points. I had 15 at first, and Kathy said that was too many, so I got it down to 12. 12 principles of God's judgment. You can certainly have more. I don't think you can have any less in looking at this entire chapter. We're just going to look at it from this perspective. Paul is making the point that Job was seeking to answer that Solomon concludes God is judge. Judgment is coming. No one will escape the judgment of God. No one has an excuse to get out of it. No one has an exemption. No one can say, I'm exempt. And so in these 29 verses, he goes on and on about judgment. Let's look at them very briefly. Here's the first principle in verse 1. God's judgment is impervious to excuses. It's impervious to excuses. Therefore, you have no excuse. Now, who's he talking to? Every one of you who passes judgment, those who are moralists, those who look and say, I'm not as bad as other sinners. I told you when we were studying this a few weeks ago that I I used to preach in the prisons when I was early in seminary. And it was remarkable to me that prisoners, even in prison, they have a system of of God judging, judging on a curve where they say, yes, I know I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as that guy who did this, that, and the other. They even sit in judgment. You have no excuse, every one of you who passed judgment, for 
in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Jesus said, the measure and the standard by which you judge others, you will be held accountable to. And the point of verse 1 is, Paul is saying, there is no excuse. You have no excuses. Boy, we live in a society of excuses. Just listen to the news any night. Each party has an accusation against another party, and that party has a number of excuses to cover up its missteps. Happens in our family. Happens at the dinner table. Excuse after excuse after excuse. Those may work in this world. They may be convincing. They may even have traction. But the point Paul is making is when you stand before God and you stood in judgment before another, you have no excuses that will get any traction with the Almighty. God's judgment, impervious to excuses. He moves on in verse 2 to show us another principle. God's judgment is based on truth. God's judgment is based on what he knows. It's based on truth. And we know, that's important, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. God's judgment is according to truth. He even tells us internally in our consciences that we will one day face him. No one will be able to hide in the great day from the truth of our life. Now, I grew up with the illustration in uh, going to high school camps that one day, it was a terrifying illustration, one day we will show up before the judgment of God and all the angels will be sitting in the grandstands on one side and all of our friends and relatives and people we know and don't know will be on the grandstands on the other side and we'll be standing in the middle with God who will be then showing a video to everybody of our life. Things thought, things done. Um, just not true. God doesn't need a video to show anybody anything. He has absolute perfect recall of every instant in history at any given time. We will know him as we are known. He doesn't need a video. Yet, we will understand the truth of God and the truth about our lives, both redeemed and those unsaved, in the moment of sight at the judgment. Even those, those of us who know Christ, who love Christ, who, who are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, who are trying to do what's right, who are striving and, and fighting sin, even when he says, well done, good and faithful servant, and crowns us, what will we do? We will take those crowns off and toss them back at the one who is alone worthy of crowns. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. He has given in the intuition of every man a sense of God's righteous and vindictive wrath and judgment. You see that every night on, if you watch television. It's, it's just the same thing over and over. Every drama is, is, is I mean, have you, have you figured this out? They show you there's... Nice people with nice things, and a bad guy does something to a nice guy, and then the rest of the show is showing how the bad guy gets it, and we say yay. Pretty simple plot. Problem is, in God's economy, in God's storyline, we're all the bad guys. His judgment is based on truth from which no one will ever be able to run or hide. Thirdly, we find in verse 3, God's judgment is inescapable. 
It's inescapable. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? These were people who actually thought they and God were the dynamic duo. God has this righteous standard of the world, especially looking back at those pagans and heathen in chapter 1, and I'm with God, I think that's wrong, I'll pass judgment with God, I sit on the throne with him. God says, oh no, do you suppose that you're going to escape your own judgment? Every man will stand before the righteous judgment of God. Judgment is inescapable. And yet, Every man would seek to escape the judgment. Back to what Solomon said. I know this. The conclusion is this. You die and you're judged. Hebrews 9, 27. It's appointed a man wants to die, then the judgment. It's certain. Judgment is inescapable. Judgment will happen, and that's why chapter will conclude with judgment either being enacted on us in a rightful payment of our sin forever in a real eternal hell or the substitution of the indescribably precious Son of God who died for us so we would not have to experience that. Judgment is inescapable. In verse 4, he tells us judgment is patient. God's judgment is patient. Oh, this is good news. Or do you think lightly, verse 4, of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 that the reason people keep on sinning is God doesn't judge them immediately, therefore they think they're free to sin the rest of their lives. One of the questions that this chapter answers is what kind of judge do we have? Would you turn for just a moment back over to Exodus chapter 33? I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 34. Familiar territory. This is where Moses goes back up after he smashes the tablets. He receives new tablets. The Ten Commandments again are given to him. He goes up to meet with God. It's interesting because he says in chapter 33, verse 18, show me your glory, and God says, I will tell you my name. Moses says, appeal to my eyes. God says, I'm going to appeal to your ears. I will proclaim to you the name of the Lord. He finally does that the next day in chapter 34, verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord. Now, I want you to listen. What kind of God do we have? What kind of God is is Romans and Paul describing? This judge, what kind of judge do we meet in the judgment? Compassionate. Gracious. One of my favorite Hebrew words. Slow to anger, long-nosed. His nose doesn't squish up with anger. Abounding. Overwhelming, overflowing in loving kindness and faithfulness or truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Then he says, and yet by no means will leave the guilty unpunished. Now if you do the math, God is eight times more inclined to grace and forgiveness than he is judgment. 
Oh, judgment comes, but not until after he's given time and chance and opportunity again and again and again. And that's what Paul is saying here in 2.4. Don't think right, wrongly about his, his kindness. His kindness should lead you to repentance. You still have a heartbeat. You still have breath. You can still repent. But immediately after saying that, he goes on to say, fifthly, that God's judgment is certain and set. Oh, he's patient. But there is an end to that patience. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. When we study this, we said there is an appointed day in which God will judge every human soul. No one is exempt. There are no excuses to get out of it. It's certain and it's set And the longer we put it off without receiving the gospel and believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are storing up wrath. You know what that tells us? It will be worse for some than others. Jesus said that. It will be worse for for, for those who've seen me than it is Sodom and Gomorrah in the judgment. It will be horrific. It will be eternal. It will be hell. But it will be worse for those who've heard the truth and stored up wrath because they've rejected the truth. It's certain, and it's set. Which leads us, obviously, in Paul's thinking, into a next principle, which is this. God's judgment is proportionate. It is proportionate. He goes on to say, speaking of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds? Judgment is personal. To those who, by perseverance in doing good... Seek glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. Those who've sought the gospel out and are trying to honor God, that's a good thing in the day of judgment. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, there's the key, obey the truth, obedience, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first, also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. At first reading, these, these, these verses can look like that Paul is teaching works salvation, right? You do good, you get God. You do bad, you get hell. It's not what he's teaching. All we have to do is sneak over into Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and following, and we're going to find out for the rest of the book, he's saying you're just because of faith. You're just because of belief. What he's talking about here is those who've trusted in Christ obviously have lifestyles that follow it. But those who have lifestyles that are contrary to God's standard are obviously those who don't believe the gospel and haven't received Christ. He reverses what he, or actually extends what he said in verses, chapter 1, verse 16, the Jew first and also to the Greek. Just as the gospel comes to the Jews first and also to the Greek, so will judgment come to the Jew first and also the Greek, because the Jews had more revelation and should have known that Jesus was the Messiah. Seventh, God's judgment is impartial. It's impartial. This is important. And he makes this statement as simple and as clear as possible. Verse 11, there is no partiality with God. God does not play favorites. It was um, 
interesting when I was in a, uh, a campus ministry in college that uh, I went to a training weekend um, that taught us, and I'm not making this up, it was a sports outreach. What you want to do is find the head cheerleader, find the football captain, find the captain of the wrestling team, the tallest player on the basketball team, and if you can win them to Christ, then everyone will follow them. It was well-meaning, just untrue. God's not partial. God doesn't say, oh, if I could just get the best people, then everyone would believe. That's not what he does at all. He is impartial. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7 says, you know what our resume is of, of Christians? Not many mighty, not many noble, not very smart, not very educated, not very, very clever. We are those whose hearts have been quickened by the grace of God simply and profoundly. There is no partiality with God. Now, he's speaking here specifically of the moralist who thinks he has earned God's favor and is nice enough that God will like him, and also the Jew who thinks his religiosity will earn God's favor, and also the heathen and the pagan. Bottom line is there's no partiality with God. He will exact the exact same judgment on everyone. What's the judgment? We'll see at the end of this chapter. Have you believed on Jesus Christ? Do you understand the gospel? And have you committed your life to his lordship? There's no partiality with God. He doesn't play favorites. Just look at the disciples. I mean, what a strange bunch of guys God chose, the incarnate God in Christ chose, to be the ones who would deliver the gospel to subsequent generations? We're no better than they. Number eight, God's judgment is reflective of revelation received. This is really interesting. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. This is Gentiles, those who are non-Jews. And all who have sinned under the law, now we're talking about Jews, will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. He's going to come back in chapter 3, 4, and 5 and talk about this principle in great detail. If you do the law, you're truly a Jew. You're truly one who's been redeemed. If you don't obey the law, but you hold to a superstitious affection and attraction to the law, you're just an externalist. For when Gentiles do not have the law who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law. These not having the law are a law to themselves. Here's what he says. There are Gentiles who do the right thing sometimes. And they don't even have the law. Verse 15, in that they show the work of law written in their hearts. Their keyword, conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Very important theological statement that Paul's making. Yes, the Jews had the law. Yes, they had the standard by which they should judge themselves and they should understand God's righteous judgment. Yet, even the Gentiles have the law. Read Habakkuk. Even the Gentile nations, or Obadiah, even the Gentile nations were held accountable to the standards of the law. And they didn't have the law of God. They didn't have the Mosaic law. Why? Because it's written on their hearts. Now you say, well, how is that written on a mass murderer or on a serial killer's heart? Well, Paul says you can sear your conscience. And by pursuing law, your, your, your own sin, Romans three says, Romans 1 says three times, God will give you over, give you over, give you over to the lusts of your own desires. 
your own flesh. God's judgment is reflective of revelation received. And he's basically turning the knife in the heart of the Jews here and saying, to those to whom much is given, what? Much is required. You should have understood. Number nine. And again, we studied all these things in detail. We're just pulling them together here at the end of the chapter. God's judgment is according to the gospel. God's judgment is according to the gospel. Conscience witnessed their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Verse 16, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge. This wasn't Paul's gospel. He didn't make something up. His gospel was the good news that he goes back to and articulates in Romans 1.1 and 1.3, the gospel of God concerning his son. That's his gospel. So in the end, God's judgment will be according to whether or not a person has placed their faith in Jesus Christ as the substitute for their righteous, furious reception of God's anger who died in their place, proving it by his resurrection. God will judge according to the gospel. He won't judge by saying, okay, you're good, you're bad, you're better than that guy, so you can go, but you can't. No, it's, have you believed the gospel? It's appropriate here at this ninth principle to ask that. Have you believed the gospel? Do you understand that God doesn't grade on a curve? Everyone can find someone worse than them, and most of us can find someone who we perceive as better than us. That's not the way God looks at us. He will ask, have you received my son as Lord and Savior and substitute for the death you deserve? That's the question you have to answer. Paul says, that's the day, on that day, God will judge according to the gospel. God will judge. Tenth principle is God's judgment is omniscient. Look again at verse 16. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge what? The secrets of men through Christ Jesus. It's omniscient. The greatest threat or the greatest comfort of every man's life is the knowledge of God's absolute omniscience. Talking about God's omniscience in Psalm 139, David reminds us that he sees, he knows, he perceives even when it's dark. Isn't it amazing how most crimes are committed in the dark or at night? Isn't it amazing that most of our sins happen in secret? This is a very clear statement that God is omniscient. There are no secrets with God. He sees and he knows. Gretchen Machen said, the very understanding of God's omniscience will make a man perfect. Now, we know he's doing hyperbole. No one will be perfect. But is it possible to sin with the knowledge of God's omniscience and omnipresence? Remember Tozer, what he says? In the moment of sin, every man is a practical atheist. We may say we believe in God, but in the end, we don't act like it. What's the best antidote for the sins you're struggling with? A good, healthy dose and a reminder of God's omniscience, God's omnipresence. 
He will judge the secrets of men's hearts. And I think it's fair to say that every sin can be traced back to forgetting that God's omniscient, forgetting that God's omnipresent. 11. God's judgment is excoriating on hypocrisy. It's a strong word. Excoriating means to strip something bare. It strips hypocrisy bare. Now he specifically addresses the Jews. He says, but if you name, uh, bear the name Jew and you rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and you're confident that you yourself are, in a, are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the law, in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, Verse 21, you therefore who teach another, let me ask you a question. Do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? Then verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. What is he talking about here? It's simple hypocrisy. You say you believe in, you say you live at, you say you hold to a standard publicly and verbally that in your heart and in private and in secret you don't. And can we say that's not just a Jewish problem? How easy it is to come to church to look good to act like everything's right when it's not. I had a really interesting conversation with one of my sons when he was very young. I was preaching in, uh, out in California, and I just made this simple offhand kind of joking comment. I, I think that we know Satan comes to church. I think he gets a ride to church in my van. I mean, it seems like if something can go wrong in the family, it will go wrong on the ride to church. And one of my, <laughs> are you amening your van or my van, Michael? That's what I want to, our van. our van, okay, that's fair. Well, my son, just for argument's sake, let's just call him Luke, um, <laughs> when he was little, leaned over and said, Mom, Dad just called me Satan. So, no, I wasn't. I was just saying that there's conflict. It is so easy to show up at church at religious exercises, at church picnics. Hey, brother. It seems like brother covers a multitude of sins. Hey, brother. And we act great, and, and we should not act foolish. But the truth is, what's really going on in the depths of our heart? Are we, no, wrong question. How deep is our hypocrisy? Paul's saying the judgment excoriates it, it strips it bare, it lays it waste. Which we should conclude, obviously, that 12th principle. That's because God's judgment is focused on the heart. In this chapter that talks about God's judgment, he ends where you would expect Paul by looking at the rest of the corpus of Scripture to end on the heart. God's judgment is focused on the heart. For indeed, Circumcision is of value if 
your Jewishness is value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision, your Jewishness has become Gentile. It's become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man, the Gentile, keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? He's saying, look, it's a matter of what you do and how you live and respond to God, not whether or not you had surgery. And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, verse 27, will he not judge you who through the le- having the letter of the law and the circumcision are transgressors of the law? God says, I'm looking at the heart of a Gentile and his response to me as much as I am those who have kept the traditions of the law. And then he finally concludes in verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. This must have stung the Jews who are reading this more than anything else. He's not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart. Deuteronomy goes on and on about circumcise your heart, circumcise your heart, deal with your heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. In our last study, we said, how can you ultimately get the praise of God? It's real simple. Have a heart that's dedicated to him through and because of the gospel. It's not by the letter. It's by the Spirit. His praise comes from God. Paul has been clearly and convincingly showing us in chapter 1 that Gentiles, that the pagans, that the heathen are lost without any excuses before God. Romans 1, 17 and following tell us that. Now, in the first part of Romans 2, he shows us that moral people are not exempt from God's judgment. And then in verse 17, he changes and he says, those people who are moral are actually the Jews And in chapter 3, he's going to show us that religiosity in the very beginning, the first 20 verses, religiosity, superstitious religiosity cannot control the inevitable wrath of God either. Paul's working toward a reality. I want you to look at this. Romans chapter 3, turn over there for a moment. He will tell us in verse 12, there's none who does good, not even one. But here's the conclusion. He begins talking about the answer, justification by faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 3. But look at the conclusion of the first two and a half chapters. It's in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth, not just the Jews, every mouth may be closed, and here it is. All the world may become what? accountable to God. The argument of the first two chapters, which will extend up to chapter 3, verse 20, is this. Everyone, everyone is accountable to God. And once you realize that you're accountable to God, you are in deep trouble. You can't be good enough. You can't try hard enough. And even if by some divine miracle you or I were to be perfect, from this point on it would not cover the transgressions and the sins that we've committed up to this point. As one of my sons said to me, Dad, not being saved means you're in trouble with God. So said, you're right. So how do you fix that? How do you answer Job's question? 
How can a man be in the right before God? Can I give you the answer? He can't. But God can make him right before his own judgment seat because of the divine transfer. He gives us, love what the Puritans call, alien, outside of us, alien righteousness. What must a man do to be right before God? The answer is to be perfect. Well, that disqualifies all of us and every man ever born except one. And the good news, the gospel is God takes the righteous perfection of Jesus and by faith, as we'll learn in chapter 3, verse 21 and following, by faith, it almost sounds too fantastical to even say, gives that to us. He gives us perfection. Imputes righteousness to us. And you say, what about our sin? Oh, he took care of that because he took our sin and put it on him at the cross. Do you ever weary of looking at how wonderful the gospel is? That it's it's not by works. Aren't you glad it's not by works? Have you looked at your life? Have you read the newspaper? The good news of God, I love it, chapter 1, verse 1. The gospel of God at the end of the verse, verse 3, concerning his son. Everything, everything, everything comes back to Jesus. So, question from chapter 2. Are you aware that you are accountable to the Almighty Judge. Are you aware that there is a judgment coming and you are not able to avoid it? It is inescapable and you and I are ultimately and utterly accountable before his judgment. But are you also aware that he's provided an advocate? See, the Romans has the language of a court system. Even justification is just court. In the first two uh, chapters, he's told us every man is condemned before God. You come to court with with God, you're guilty, you're you're done. But beginning in chapter 3, verse 21 and following, he's going to say, but he has provided an advocate, a lawyer, and a judge who's all the same, and he actually took the punishment and penalty for those who would believe. I trust you never get tired of thinking through that. We have an advocate in our judicial jeopardy before God before his righteous standard, who has made a way and given an answer to Job. How can a man be in the right before God? Answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. I ask you to bow for just a moment. Can I just press the issue with with you for a moment? Have you believed on Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in hoping maybe God will judge on a curve and there's more people worse than me, so I'll make it? Or do you see yourself as Romans 2 describes us all? Romans 1 concludes, we are waylaid by God's righteousness. No excuses. Inescapable judgment without a Savior Do you know the Savior? Do you believe in the Savior? Have you committed your life to the Savior? 
If not, you can do that right now. To as many as believed him, he gave the right to become children of God. If you have questions, at the end of the service, our prayer room will be open to my right. and Men and women will be there and be glad to talk to you about the condition of your soul. Introduce you to the one who, who saved us. Precious Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you to come there if you have any questions, if we can counsel with you or pray with you at all. Father, I, this is just hopeless without Christ. Your judgment is so firm, it's so set, it's so penetrating, and yet you have made a provision for us. You have given us an advocate before your throne. You've imparted and imputed to us righteousness we didn't live and don't deserve because of your son and taken from us on the cross sin. How can we do anything but say and sing, hallelujah, what a savior. There are no doubt those who are wrestling with this. Don't let them leave the building. Lord, convict their hearts to speak to someone before they leave the building. And if that's you, I would beg you, run to Christ. Run to the Savior. And for those of us who know you, help us to breathe a deep sigh of joy that one has died for us. He's taken our sins and we bear them no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before you leave, we have some special business to take care of. Uh, Bob talked about our new members. I'm going to ask them to come forward. They will. Scott and Amanda, uh, Sigrid and Justin and Amy, if you guys would come on up for a moment. And uh, we have a new members commitment and covenant that we want to make to you and you to us. We miss Sigrid. She's not here? Okay, we'll catch her next time. So it's just the four of you. Come on closer. Won't bite. We're grateful that you guys have decided to give your membership to this local body. So thankful for all four of you. Um, you remember the responsibilities that membership brings. We talked about this in our membership class, but now we're going to make it public. I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and you can simply respond, I will, okay? Will you be diligent to exercise self-control so that your lifestyle exhibits both true Christian love and personal holiness? Will you take seriously your relationship to others in the body of Christ, striving to maintain unity, avoiding gossip, backbiting, anger, and do all you can to stimulate love and good deeds in others as you seek to exercise your spiritual gifts in faithful service? Will you consistently contribute as a good steward of God's blessings, such time, talent, and money in the measure that God prospers you so that our local church and worldwide ministry of spreading the gospel may continue? Will you teach biblical truth to your family and acquaintances as God gives you opportunity with a desire to see them come to trust Christ and be saved? Will you always be willing to give and receive loving admonition and instruction with meekness and in love? Will you promote the spiritual well-being of others at Mission Road Bible Church, sustain its worship ordinances and doctrines, 
and submit to the process of biblical discipline and restoration? And will you commit to pray for the ministry here at Mission Road, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and the lost that you know who need a Savior? Now, we understand that you saying, I will, doesn't mean perfectly. We, I read that, and I think, yeah, me too, I hope. So I'm going to ask all of you to stand up, and I'm going to ask uh, the members to be able to answer this question. Members, will you, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, seek to love, encourage, teach, admonish, and comfort and exhort these new members with a genuine desire to see them grow in the knowledge of Christ and his word. Great. Now I'm going to ask you guys to leave. Just go out and stand by the fireplace out there. I want you to make sure that you uh, swing by and extend a hand of Christian fellowship and welcome to them. And uh, we look forward to seeing all of you back here tonight. We're going to look at the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. And when you look at all the implications and tributaries of application of that commandment, I think you'll, most of us will think, oh, I don't do that. Just come. Just come. Uh, it is, uh, it, I've been looking at this all week, and I am convicted, and I don't want to be alone. So come and share my misery with me. Lord, dismiss us with uh, great thoughts of you and honoring uh, gestures of love to the fathers. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.